Dear Father, thank you, Lord, that we have a warm place to be on a cold night and that uh, we're joined by others who have a like-mindedness concerning your word. Father, we know there's a lot of ways people can gather in the body and there's a lot of good reasons to do so. But, Father, there's none more compelling and more necessary than to gather at your feet and to listen to the word of God. And, Father, there are going to be things you'll teach us tonight, as you always do, that are foreign to our ears and perhaps even to our circumstances, things that we may find interesting but wonder how they'll go to work in our life. But, Father, we also know that because the the Word of God is living and active, we can be sure that what you're planting in our hearts tonight is something you can bring to mind in the day that they're intended to to be used. And uh, we can trust in that and give our full attention to things, even things that may be uh, less pertinent to, to what we are concerned with in our daily walk. And then again, Father, in other cases, we'll hear things that pierce us and bring us uh, directly to contend with things in our walk. And I pray, Lord, you'd give us an opportunity perhaps for both of those things tonight, that we'd learn something that we can put to use today and things, Father, that will continue to influence our walk in years to come. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week we finish one story and we begin another. First, we've got to finish the account of Jesus in the temple at the end of the week of Feast of Tabernacles, which is where we were last week. This is that week-long feast where Israel remembers their wanderings in the desert in the years prior to reaching the Promised Land. That's what it memorialized. And, of course, we said it was also a feast that looked forward to the Messiah's coming and the kingdom that he sets up. And, in fact, if you know your eschatology, I'll just mention as an aside then you should know that Zechariah tells us that as Israel enters into the kingdom under the Messiah, the first thing that will take place in their experience there will be the Feast of Tabernacles in its fulfilled form. In the way it was practiced in Jesus' day, this was the most popular feast each year in the feast calendar of Israel. It's the one that every Jewish male looked forward to and was required to attend in person in Jerusalem. And as you remember, at the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus' unbelieving brothers tried unsuccessfully to convince him that when he goes down on the occasion of this feast, he should use it as an opportunity to raise support, as it were, for his identity as Messiah. But instead, he traveled up to Jerusalem secretly. And then, as we saw, while he was in the city, at a point late in the week, he gets up into the temple and begins to teach to crowds. And then that debate ensued between half or so of the crowd who thought he might actually be the Messiah and the rest who were sure that he wasn't. And then, of course, amongst them were those religious leaders of Israel who were determined to make sure that no one accepted him as Messiah. And we said last week that the fact that there was a debate at all about the question of his identity, an identity that should have been very easy to understand given all that he said and did, that is why we did not see the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles in Christ's first coming. Unlike many of the other feasts, like Passover, which is fulfilled in his first coming, this is one of the feasts at the end of the feast year. And the feasts of the Jewish calendar are divided, for the most part, into two halves, with one in between. And the first half are three feasts that were all fulfilled in his first coming. The last half of the feast year has three feasts as well, and they are all fulfilled in his second coming. This being the last on the calendar, this fits into the group that is not fulfilled until his second coming. The Feast of Tabernacles. And it was not fulfilled, we learned last week, because Israel did not embrace him as Messiah. Israel was divided on the question of his identity. And because they would not embrace him, he would not give them the kingdom that he offered them. 
Instead, this generation of Israel, those that were alive in this day, are condemned and do not receive the kingdom. That is waiting for a future generation. So John wrote this iconic chapter set during the feast, one that's intended to celebrate the coming of a kingdom. But he shows that in the midst of the celebration of it, they were simultaneously rejecting the opportunity to even receive it by how they were treating the Messiah. So let's return to the story. This is where John now explains how this week-long feast ends. It starts in verse 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. At the beginning here, John refers to the great day of the feast, which was the end of this seven day observance. It's called the great day because it involved an elaborate ritual that centered on water. Interestingly, each morning of the seven days, early in the morning, the high priest of Israel would lead a procession from the temple down to the pool of Siloam in the city. And in this pool, the priests having brought golden pitchers, then would be filling their pitchers with water from the pool. And then they carried this water back through the water gate, appropriately, on the south side of the temple and up into the temple courtyard. Then, in a ceremony, the priests would pour the water into a silver basin that was on the west side of the brazen altar. Now, you may know the brazen altar is outside in the courtyard of the temple. And they had this silver basin set up near it. They pour the water into the basin and then the Jews had connected this tubing from the basin and fed the water from the basin down through these tubes to the foot, to the base of that altar. So that effectively by pouring the water in this basin into this silver bowl, you were depositing it at the base of the altar. And the crowd of Jews that would follow the priests down to the pool, watching them collect the water each morning and follow them back. Some would drink from the pool as sort of a ritual of their own. Others would be joyously reciting two verses of scripture, Isaiah 55, 1 and Isaiah 12, 3. And this is the two of them. They would recite, "Ho, everyone who thirsts comes to the waters. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. This is what they were saying the whole time this whole thing would be taking place. The Mishnah of the Jews actually stated that he who never has seen the joy of this water drawing ceremony has never in his life seen joy. A way of emphasizing how joyous this moment was intended to be. And then lastly, on the seventh day of the seven, this same routine was repeated, except with one change. When the priest entered the temple with the water, they walked in a procession around the altar seven times, a la Jericho, I guess. And then as the water was poured out into the silver basin on its way to the altar, other priests would then take the daily drink offering of wine and pour it out at the altar. The pouring out of the water was meant to represent the Lord's provision of the water to the people in the desert, while the wine was intended to represent the Lord's pouring out of his Holy Spirit 
on his people in accordance with the last day's prophet, Joel. Ironically, when Pentecost arrived and men spoke under the influence of the Spirit, they were accused of having been drinking in the morning. So this idea of wine being a representation of that is actually very appropriate. So you have both sides of the process being represented, water looking backward toward the exodus and wine looking forward toward the kingdom in this ceremony. Lastly, you'd have the crowd of men in the temple watching all this take place, giving thanks and reciting Psalms 113 through 118. Now you can appreciate the drama of Jesus's words as he stands in the temple on this final day, the great day of this feast. And he makes this declaration. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me to drink, he says, in the midst of this water ceremony. And he who believes in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water in contrast to the ones that are being poured out at the base of the altar from this pool. Obviously, his statements are meant to draw upon all the vivid images that are taking place around him in this time. People celebrating a river of water, leaving the altar and they're celebrating the water from the pool and so on. But they're missing the spiritual significance of all of those symbols, which God has obviously planted in not only the law, but also in the psyche and the culture of Israel so that these symbols would be there on the day his son would enter into the temple as he's doing now. Meanwhile, the irony, of course, is the very fulfillment of all of those things is standing in their midst. That is Christ. Anyone who comes to the Messiah, that person will never again thirst for God, not in the sense of wanting for something that lies outside their reach, but they'll have the thing they want. Instead, they'll experience so much living water that it becomes a constant flow through and out of them. Now, to be sure that we get this point, John, the writer, he adds a commentary in verse 39. You notice in verse 39, he tells us that this river Jesus mentioned was a euphemism for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Why is he making this clear in the text? I think it's because people in Israel, the nation as a whole, was not coming to Jesus as a group. We've already said this is a, a moment in which you see the sadness of an opportunity being passed by, in a sense. And yet... Here's Jesus standing up saying, anyone, singular, anyone who comes to me will not thirst. It makes clear that though the nation as a whole was not going to receive the kingdom, it was still possible for individuals within the nation of Israel to receive the joy of the kingdom even now, at least in the spiritual sense of coming to know Christ through the Spirit. So this is a way of illustrating, I think, both the fact that the nation has lost something or is in the process of losing something, but the individual person can still know the Lord. Yet, even in the midst of all of this, the division between those who believe and don't is still very evident, isn't it? As they continue their debate in verses 40 through 41, the crowd offers two familiar answers to the question of who is Jesus. Some say he is the Christ and some say he is the prophet. And you remember this this dichotomy back from earlier in John's gospel when we looked at John the Baptist and the Pharisees came to question John the Baptist as to who he was. And some said, are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Well, then what are you? Remember that scene? And we said back then that there's this notion within pharisaical teaching that there would be two messiahs. There would be a prophet who was the one who was foretold to come and die and suffer. And then there was the Christ, the one who was foretold in the Old Testament scriptures to come and reign and conquer. And they couldn't reconcile the two. How do you have a guy that's going to both die and conquer? I can't see how that works. Must be two messiahs. Well, they were almost there. It wasn't two messiahs. It's one messiah, two comings. That's what they got wrong. So they're saying in the crowd, this must be the guy that's called to come and die. No, no, this is the guy who's called to come and conquer. Well, you're both right. But they didn't see that. 
And in the end, they had to debate against those who said this can't be the right guy because some said, look, if you look down the prophecy checklist of who the Messiah is said to be, there's this thing about his origins. He has to be from David and he has to come from the city of Bethlehem. And they knew Christ had come out of the Galilee, or at least that's what they thought. And so they say this guy can't be the Christ because Christ doesn't come from the Galilee. He comes from Bethlehem. Well, of course, Jesus did come from Bethlehem, though that must not have been common knowledge to the people in the temple. How ironic is it that the very verse of Scripture that could support and prove Jesus as Messiah is being used to say he isn't, to discredit him? And it's just really the ignorance of individuals. By the way, I find this is an interesting little aside and something to remember. Quite often when people say they think scripture is wrong on some point or contradicting itself on some point, it's never the scripture that's wrong. It's always the person whose understanding is somehow falling short. And as a result, they're blaming the scripture for their own ignorance. This is a classic example of that. In the end, the division remains, which leads some in the crowd to threaten violence against Jesus for the charge of impersonating the Messiah. But his supporters stood in the way, which prevented anyone from laying hands on him. That would be my best explanation for why they couldn't actually act on their desire. Once again, though, another stalemate and another continuation of the division. Look at verses 45 through 52. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them. You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, who had come to him before being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. In this crowd, among the people, there were these officers of the temple, and they must have been under orders to seize Jesus, or at least they had been encouraged to do so at some prior point by the Pharisees and by the other leaders. When we say officers here in the court, we're talking about Levites, not priests per se, but other members of the Levite tribe who were assigned to protect and run the temple, essentially. And it says they were unable to complete their arrest. And so they show up to the Pharisees empty handed, which is not a good thing to do, apparently. When they're pressed for why they show up empty handed, their excuse is, well, Jesus spoke with such power that it prevented us from acting. What they probably mean is one of two things. Either they mean that his words were stirring up the crowd to such an extent that these men didn't feel like they could enforce their orders without some risk to themselves because of the crowd's desire for Jesus. That's one possible answer. Or perhaps... What they mean is that they themselves were so impacted by the words that they couldn't bring themselves to grab him. It sounds a little bit more like the latter, because as you see the response from the Pharisees, they're questioning whether these guys haven't been taken under by Jesus's spell. Also, one commentator once wrote that the soldiers came with weapons to arrest the Lord and instead he arrested them with his words. Now, in the end, you know, it all traces back to the sovereignty of God, because the timing here is not appropriate for Jesus's arrest, but Nonetheless, the Pharisees then go after the Levites. They say, first of all, have you been led astray as well? And then they add, not a single Pharisee has been on Jesus' side. No one else has agreed with him. You're not falling into that trap, are you? These statements are classic techniques of peer pressure and appealing to fear 
and to personal pride in some cases here that I think it's worth a moment to dissect a little bit what's being said, because behind the scenes, you remember, the enemy is at work in all that's being done here. Look what the Pharisees do first. They want the officers to feel foolish for showing any sympathy for Jesus. In other words, if they agree, if the officers agree with Jesus's words, then they're going to be branded as fools, as having been tricked by Jesus. No one likes to be accused of being a fool. And so this accusation has the effect of pressuring them to fall into line, because who wants to be accused of being with the ones who are idiots? This is a favorite trick of the enemy, making you feel pressure to join the crowd against your own convictions. My favorite example for the way the enemy uses this trick is in the way the opponents of the creation account in Genesis will try to make those who believe in it feel foolish. I was listening to a science program on the radio recently, just this last week, and the scientist who was featured on the program was taking every opportunity, and I was listening for this, it was so easy to find, he was taking every opportunity to mock those who reject evolution and who believe in creation. It wasn't enough for him to simply talk the facts of his perspective. He really went out of his way to mock the ignorance and the foolishness of those people. That's the same tactic as you see the Pharisees attempting with the officers here. Rather than address the substance of the conversation, you notice they never say, well, what did Jesus say? What words did he speak that were so powerful? They they skip past that and they move directly to attacking the person who holds their different point of view. We have to be prepared, friends, to become a fool for what we believe concerning Christ. And when I say a fool, of course, I mean in the eyes of the world, because whether it's your belief in creation or the flood or because you believe the Bible is literal history or because you hold to a biblical view of morality or family or the fact that you believe in a heaven and a hell or simply because you believe in the deity of Christ, any and all of that, you should expect to see result in treatment in which you're declared to be a fool for having believed in such myths. 1 Corinthians 1.25 and onward, Paul says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and he has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. In other words, he has intentionally taken the message of salvation and enclosed it in a story that is patently foolish so that when the world rejects it in their wisdom, they'll be shamed in the end for having thought themselves so wise in the face of such a powerful salvation. So that's the first tactic they've used is to make you feel foolish for believing something that no one else accepts. Then, secondly, they have that second statement of the officers. They say no Pharisee has followed Jesus. Now, why do they mention that? Well, this is a second favorite tactic of the enemy. Never disagree with the experts. The Pharisees say, if you notice in the next line, you can't trust the crowd's assessment. The crowd doesn't know the law like we do. That's why they're accursed. That's why they're going to fall prey to this charlatan. They're bound to come up with the wrong opinion on their own. If you side with the crowd over the experts, then you're as stupid as the crowd is. You're as accursed as the crowd is. Now, this tactic has never fallen out of favor with the enemy because it is so effective. Think about other cases of history. The priests and the bishops of the Catholic Church long argued that laymen should not read the Bible, much less attempt to interpret it. In fact, they considered it a heresy when, in the time of the Reformation, people were translating the Bible into the common language of the day, whether it's German or otherwise, and were burning people at the stake for attempting to do so. 
because they thought the idea that anyone should be able to read and understand what was in that book was itself wrong. Only the priests and the bishops can interpret the Bible properly. Only the Pope knew that stuff, according to the Catholic Church. And if anyone else tried, they were punished. And that was the tactic used against Martin Luther. Ironically, the so-called experts are typically the ones without any spiritual understanding of their own because they don't know the Lord, for they wouldn't persecute anyone who wants to read the Bible if they truly knew the Lord. That heart wouldn't have been there. The enemy also uses this technique, by the way, in the battle over creation. I mention this again because it's just one that's very contemporary for us. Today, we're told that so many so-called experts have determined that Genesis is a myth and Darwin was correct. If you choose to challenge that orthodoxy, then you are a fool and you are obviously wrong because you're going against the common view of experts. And if the people in the white jackets tell you this is true, then they must be right. They must be. If four out of five dentists agree, it must be true. Right. Of course, when it comes to the knowledge of God, the majority are generally, if not always, wrong. When it comes to the knowledge of God, the majority are usually, if not always, wrong. The Bible says the path is narrow that leads to righteousness. And there was only ever a remnant of believing Jews within Israel. And today, only a minority of the world population knows the truth about Christ. In fact, I might go so far as to say that perhaps a relatively small number within a given church really know the Lord, depending on the church. So don't be surprised to find yourself in the minority. Expect to be in the minority. The truth is, though you are in a minority, you are not alone in knowing the truth. There are believers everywhere, in every camp and among all kinds of men. Just like the Lord told Paul before he entered into Corinth for the first time. He says, I have many people in this city. That was before Paul went in. I read a story about Chinese believers who were enduring great persecution as they do today. One day they were overjoyed because they were met by a Western Christian who was visiting there and secretly came into one of these home churches to meet with the Chinese Christians there. They were overjoyed to see him and they asked him if there were Christians in any other country outside of China. They had assumed that Christianity was limited only to China because of the way they had to secretly act in their faith and they had no outside contact. You see the same thing here going on, even though the Pharisees said that there hasn't been a single Pharisee that's agreed with this nutcase, yet they were standing in the midst of one who had. The Pharisee Nicodemus, the one we were introduced to in chapter 3. Obviously, John mentions the sympathetic Pharisee at this critical moment so as to counter the Pharisees' false claims that were just made a moment earlier. That there was, in fact, a believing Pharisee, although he was obviously keeping a very low profile when it comes to his faith. But at this moment, you see him speak up. He speaks up in, I guess, what you might call a subtle defense of Jesus. He reminds his peers that anyone who is accused under the law must be given a chance to defend himself and explain his words or his actions. We would call that due process. And the Jews had a very strict form of due process in their jurisprudence as well. And what he's wanting, of course, is to put a break to their rush to judgment. He wants to slow this down. He's trying to buy Jesus some time. But at the same time, he's, he's trying to be careful not to align himself too visibly with Jesus, because then, of course, they'll come after him. You know, you might want to be critical of Nicodemus here for a moment. You might wonder why didn't he take a more public stand and just take the punishment that comes with it, etc. But don't be too quick to hold that judgment against him. First of all, he's a new believer, and he's probably without the benefit of any real discipleship at this point. Secondly, he's trying to preserve his position of influence, probably so that he can use it 
to Jesus's advantage whenever he can. Right. So he wants to stay where he's at to help Jesus. And I think we might do very much the same thing if we were in the same situation. Notice, though, what the Pharisees do in response. Notice how they ignore the substance of Nicodemus's arguments. And instead, what do they do? They attack him personally. They insult him. They suggest that he might be from the same backwater region of the country as Jesus was. That was the Galilee. And that's actually a third tactic of the enemy. They were attacking him so as to provoke fear in him and silence him through that fear. They're suggesting that his loyalties might lie somewhere other than with their group. The next thing they do is the fourth tactic, which is to misquote the truth. The Pharisees say, no prophet arises from the Galilee. They make that assertion and they say it as if it's just well-established fact. Hey, we all know this. But in fact, it's not true in the least. Prophets did arise from the Galilee. Jonah, Hosea, Nahum, and other prophets actually originated from the Galilee. So it's a flat lie to say that none ever do. Now, maybe they mean the prophet as in the one Christ. Maybe that's what they were trying to say, that it doesn't come from the Galilee, like the people were saying. I don't think that's what they mean. I'm not inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt. I think they were just speaking off the cuff so as to say, you idiots, don't you realize? No one ever comes from the Galilee as a prophet. So as we conclude here on this section, make note of these tactics of the enemy and how they are used against those who stand up for the truth. Because I assure you, friends, if you haven't already faced them, you will face them. These are classic, repetitive techniques of the enemy. The enemies of the gospel have these four tactics. When you show your faith publicly, they will mock your views as proof of your ignorance and your gullibility. If you say you rest your views on the support of Scripture, then they will in turn misquote biblical truth to counter you. If you then go further and make logical arguments, so as to reveal their errors, then they will simply abandon the debate altogether and move directly to attacking you personally. In other words, they aren't interested in the truth. Just as John said earlier in the gospel, they hate the light because it exposes their evil deeds. You cannot reason with spiritually dead people. And by reason, I mean to the facts of Scripture, to the truth of Christ. You can't reason them into faith. You can only present the truth in love and then wait and hope for the Lord to open the heart. But you cannot move past that into the discussion or debate of the finer points of Scripture with someone who is spiritually dead. That's lead a horse to water, yes, but you can't force their face into the water. That's where we're at with with someone in that situation. Now, that brings this story to an end and launches us into the next story for the night. And there really is a strong division between these two. So changing gears, look at the last verse of John 7 and then through verse 11. Of John 8, verse 53, everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, 
I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. As we begin this story, I want to first address a curious issue in the text itself. You may have noticed in your Bible that this passage begins and ends with little brackets. In fact, if your English Bible does not do that, consider getting a different English Bible because it really is good that it's there if it is. Brackets mean that the Bible translators suspect this text, the text held within the brackets, was not originally written by John. In other words, the story of the adulterous woman that opens John's eighth chapter was not written by John. That section, chapter 7, verse 53, all the way through 8, 11, appears to have been added several centuries after John wrote his gospel. Most English translators today would acknowledge this by enclosing this section in brackets to indicate its questionable origins. Now, there are several clues that lead scholars to this conclusion. First, the vast majority of the early original manuscripts of John's gospel do not have this passage in his gospel. In fact, this passage didn't appear in any manuscripts of John's gospel until about the 6th century. That was long after the New Testament canon was officially established in around the 4th century. Also, the style of the writing in this passage differs greatly from John's normal style. It reads a lot more like one of the synoptic gospel writers. And its placement at this point in John's eighth chapter makes for a really awkward interruption in John's narrative. In fact, if you jump from John 7.52, which is the verse right before the first bracket, jump from that verse directly to John 8.12, And the narrative just flows seamlessly. It's like you wouldn't miss the stuff in between. You'd never notice that it was gone. That suggests very strongly that this passage was inserted between those two points at a later time by a copyist, the people who replicate scripture by copying it onto new scrolls. Now, with that said, should we study this passage? There are some pastors who won't. There are some places that preach past it and do not include this. My answer is absolutely. In fact, if I was to say no, we would end the class right now, right? Because it's pretty much the end of the night. So, yes, we're going to study it and we should. The fact that John didn't write these verses does not mean that the story isn't true or trustworthy or inspired scripture. On the contrary, most scholars also believe there is no reason to doubt this story's authenticity. And I say personally that Luke wrote this and it was part of his gospel as inspired by the Holy Spirit originally. The writing style matches his style closely. It features a woman in distress as the center character, which is a favorite theme of Luke. He's the one who does that a lot. And the events would fit very, very easily into the narrative of Luke 22. Luke 22 is the chapter in which you see Jesus teaching in the temple in the days before his crucifixion. And in each of the days that he teaches in the temple, one or another group of religious leaders come before him with some situation that they try to entrap him by. And it's just one of those after another while he's in the temple in Luke 22. So I think this was originally part of Luke 22. So now the question that everyone wants to answer, why would a scribe or copyist move this story out of its original proper place in Luke and put it in John's gospel? Well, in a word, convenience. The texts of scripture in the day that copyists did their work were long rolls of parchment, which we call scrolls. These parchment rolls were made, pre-made, in fixed lengths, just like we have eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper. They had fixed lengths for these scrolls, these parchments. Now, after the biblical canon was formed and established using chapter and verse numbering, 
from that point forward in history, copyists would work really hard. They'd endeavor really hard to copy entire books to a single scroll or at the very least entire chapters as they had been marked onto a single scroll. And they resisted at all costs spanning chapters of scripture across multiple scrolls because it was a very inconvenient way to distribute scripture. Usually a chapter of scripture would fit easily on a single scroll, but occasionally copyists would encounter longer chapters of scripture. The men who assembled the New Testament canon had assigned some of the longest chapters in the New Testament to Luke's gospel. If you go read Luke's gospel, a lot of the chapters in that gospel get into the verses 60s and 70s because they're very long chapters. John's gospel, on the other hand, has been assigned some of the shortest chapters of any of the gospels. So what must have happened? Well, a copyist might have been running low on spare scrolls. He had reached the end of one of those parchments while he was copying Luke 22. And to avoid running Luke 22 onto a new scroll, he decided to end the chapter by deleting the story of the adulterous woman altogether from Luke 22 and therefore fitting it onto one of the scrolls. But, of course, he doesn't want to lose the material that he just took out of Luke 22. And so he inserts that story between John's 7th and 8th chapters Why would he put it here? Well, think about it. He chose this location because these chapters are also set in the temple. So he can take a temple scene and put it in another temple scene. Also, John 8 was relatively short before he added this material in. So it would have had room on a scroll to add this additional material. Now, many unbelievers, many biblical critics would see this kind of a textual issue as cause or as evidence to say that scripture cannot be trusted. They scoff at the notion you can place your trust in what the Bible says because they'll cite an example like this as proof that we can't be sure that we've received what was actually written in the original form and that it's been changed, it's been altered, it's been copied wrong. Why do you have any faith in it given how easily it's been moved and changed, etc., etc.? So, consequently, they would dismiss all scripture as untrustworthy and useless for serious study. But in reality... Examples like this are proof of just how trustworthy the Bible is. Think about it. The surviving record of ancient biblical manuscripts is unparalleled among ancient writing. For example, the world today still has 24,000 surviving ancient manuscripts of New Testament writings. By contrast, we have only 643 copies of all the works of Homer. We have only only 49 copies of of all the manuscripts of Aristotle. We have only, in all the world, only seven copies of all of Plato's works in original manuscript form. Now, despite the survival of so few copies of all of those ancient documents, you're never going to find anyone in the academic world questioning the authenticity of those works or the accuracy of those copies. They'll never wonder whether they should spend time studying over the works of Plato or Aristotle because of such limited numbers of accurate copies, right? On the contrary, literary scholars in universities around the world devote their entire careers to studying the seven copies of Plato's works. No one suggests that those few surviving copies might have been altered or that they've been manipulated or that there's no point in studying them because they have no value. They don't ever make that argument, do they? And yet when it comes to scripture, which has a far, far better documentation and a far, far more important message, those same academics Change all the rules. Now you can't be sure scripture was preserved accurately. You can't know that it hasn't been modified because we've had so many copies, blah, 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 blah. But the irony is the truth is exactly the opposite. 
It is because we have so many surviving copies of the original biblical text that I am able to stand here today and tell you that the material in John 8 is not original to John. It's because we have so many copies, we can look across the history of their existence and know which ones were older than others and see the change happen in the 6th century. It gives us all we need to know to understand how to reconcile and to make sense of what we're reading. The power of many thousands of copies is to assure us that what we're seeing is original. A huge number of copies confirms for us the authenticity. No ancient record is better preserved than Scripture because God has ensured that his word would be accurately preserved. In fact, he was so careful, he not only preserved it, he also made clear to us where to see these movements as occurred here in John 7. And this now moved into John 8 is now a dovetail to what's going to happen in the rest of the chapter. In other words, even in God's providence that the movement occurred, we both know it and profit from it. And it's all from the same author in any case. Your faith in it or your acceptance of it is still a matter of faith as it always will be. But it's not faith absent reason. You have substantially strong evidence to support that this is trustworthy. All right, back to the story. It says here, everyone left the temple at the end of the day while Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. Jesus returns the next day to continue teaching. And when the Pharisees and the scribes see him back, they spring a trap on him, we're told. Now, you might recognize this pattern from the synoptics. As I mentioned earlier, it's evident in Luke 22. But throughout the synoptics, you always find this situation of the Jewish leaders who were unbelievers and frauds masquerading as men of God, and they frequently do this. They show up having devised some way to try to discredit Jesus or accuse him in front of the crowd. They contrive some situation, and they place it in front of Jesus, creating a dilemma for him in which there was no easy escape. That was always the goal. And they would expect him to either look foolish in the process of trying to get out of the trap or perhaps do something that violates law that then they could accuse him by afterward. Either way, they neutralize him as a threat to their authority. Now, on this occasion, they bring a woman in accused of adultery and they set her in front of Jesus as he teaches the crowd in the temple. And they choose this moment for their trap for a really good reason, because imagine in your mind's eye, Jesus is in front of a large open court in the temple grounds, a place filled with many Jews, probably on the week of Passover out of Luke 22. And there's literally thousands of people in this open area of the court. Whatever happens in this moment, whatever happens in this confrontation, it's going to be witnessed by literally thousands of people, which is going to maximize its impact. If Jesus is made to look like a fool, if he is made to violate law, there'll be enough witnesses to assure that no one is going to be forgetting this moment. So the Pharisees have chosen this setting to inflict maximum potential damage to Jesus's reputation. Secondly, the temple grounds is the one place in Jewish society where Jewish people had some latitude to exercise their own law free from Roman interference. In Jesus' days, you probably know the Jewish people were an occupied nation. They were under Roman authority, but they had a law, the law of Moses. This was their law. They were not allowed to exercise that law except under Roman authority. Romans would give them only a certain amount of latitude to exercise their own law. In this case, though, when you were in the temple grounds, inside the temple walls where only Jews could go, Jewish leaders had greater freedom and latitude. The Roman soldiers wouldn't even go into that area. They feared a riot. And so this is the one time of year and in the one place in all Israel when you might actually see the Jewish leaders able to carry out an execution, for example, and perhaps get away with it before the Roman authorities could step in and stop it. That's important because, of course, the nature of this situation is such that the woman is accused of a capital crime. So against this backdrop, the Pharisees bring this woman to Jesus And they asked Jesus to render judgment in the case of this adulteress. 
they claim the woman was caught in the very act of adultery and that the law required that this crime be punishable by stoning. And now, if Jesus agrees to this assessment, then almost certainly the Pharisees would have called upon the crowd immediately to start picking up stones and stone the woman right there on the spot. They're daring Jesus to find some way not to condemn this woman, though the law required it. Now, before we look at his response and and the nature of this trap, we need to recognize that the Pharisees are playing fast and loose with the law a little bit here. The law itself says this in Leviticus 20.10. If there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, you notice the penalty was death, but it was for both the man and the woman. You notice that? So let's ask, where's the man? I mean, she was caught in the act, right? So you can't catch somebody in the act unless they're both there. They take time to drag this woman all the way into the temple grounds and to put her in front of Jesus. You'd think they might expect to do the same thing for the man who is equally guilty, right? If they're that concerned about justice, why didn't they drag both of them there? Why just the woman? Well, clearly a woman is the more sympathetic character of the two. And that plays into their purposes here. The woman's just a pawn in a chess match that they're playing between the Pharisees and Jesus. My guess is she was probably a well-known harlot who the Pharisees knew they would find in the act if they went into her home at a certain time. They may have even set her up. And it's more than likely that they ignored her sins from the past for the most part because they had no business with her and couldn't have cared less. Except now that she can be useful to them as an example in trapping Jesus, now they're concerned about her. It was probably obvious to everyone in the crowd that these Pharisees had no sincere interest in justice, that they didn't care very much for this woman. The whole thing was directed toward Jesus. And what's really interesting is they didn't need Jesus's permission to carry out justice against this woman. Jesus is nobody to them. There's no reason for them to go to Jesus asking Jesus's opinion on a very simple matter of justice. They never would have done that for anything else. So with all of that taken into account, it's clear to anyone in the crowd what's really happening. They've contrived this situation. They're putting Jesus on the spot. They've used this woman and manipulated her for their own purposes. And the whole thing is a big game. Now, the next thing to note is the Pharisees misstated the penalty. The penalty said that the man and the woman who are caught must both die. But it doesn't say they have to be stoned. And it doesn't say they have to be stoned on the spot in the temple. In fact, historically, the method of execution in Israel for this offense was strangling. Later in the time of Ezekiel, It became common to strip the offenders naked in public, stone them, and then cut their bodies in pieces with a sword. So they moved around. They did whatever they felt like. In fact, if the girl was the daughter of a priest, then she was burned to death. That was the penalty. So by Jesus' day, stoning was more often the approved method. But it was not required that it be done in this way, not vigilante style in the temple. It would have been done usually outside the city. It would have been done after a trial. It had a whole set of rules around it. They're not following any of those rules. It all goes to the same conclusion again. This is a contrived game that they're playing. They bring a sympathetic defendant before Jesus in a public setting, demanding that he agree to immediate harsh judgment against this woman. And that left Jesus with two equally dangerous choices for how to respond to these men. Whatever he decides to do, He's likely to run into trouble either with the crowd or with Roman authorities or Jewish authorities. So here are the two choices. On the one hand, Jesus could agree to punish the woman. Her guilt was probably beyond doubt. And the law certainly specified a death penalty for this crime. 
But agreeing with the Pharisees was a real problem for Jesus under these circumstances because the crowd knew that the Pharisees were applying a kind of selective justice here. They were not being fair in this woman's case. And, of course, they generally hated these guys anyway. There was no love lost between the crowd and the Pharisees. And they always thought of the Pharisees as being harsh and pious and hypocritical. And so they knew what was going on for real behind the scenes. So they would have been sympathetic toward this woman, opposed to the Pharisees, and very curious to see which side Jesus was going to fall on. Furthermore, the crowd loved Jesus because he's been teaching mercy and forgiveness and fairness and justice. And he has been giving attention to the downtrodden and the outcast. So they would have expected him to defend this woman against this kangaroo court kind of justice, right? If he presided over the stoning of this woman, then everything he stood for, grace, mercy, love, etc., would have been forfeited in the minds of the people. And the woman's blood would have been on his hands in their mind, which, of course, is exactly what the Pharisees want, because that would have discredited Jesus as a popular figure in the culture. Finally, had he agreed to the stoning, the Pharisees could then have turned him over to the Romans when they left the temple, saying this man ordered an execution outside your authority because Jews were not allowed to execute capital punishment without Roman approval. By issuing an order to kill a woman, he would have been breaking Roman law. So on the one hand, if he agrees with what the Pharisees have set up, he's in real trouble with the crowd and with the authorities. Now, what's his other option? Well, the other option is he declines to punish the woman, and then the Pharisees can accuse Jesus of being a lawbreaker. As Hebrews 10.28 reminds us, anyone who sets aside the law of Moses is due the punishment of death. So Jesus couldn't rule that this guilty woman should go free from punishment because the law required a punishment. And if he did that, Jesus' own righteousness would have been at stake because he literally would have been going against the law that he came to fulfill, not to break. And the Pharisees would have had a legitimate charge against Jesus. So how does he escape this trap? In verse six, we're told Jesus says nothing. He just stoops down and he begins to write in the ground. Now, to fully appreciate what's happening here, I have to put you in this moment as an observer in the crowd. So I want you to imagine yourself seated as the crowd would have been on the ground in the temple. And you're watching this scene from maybe 30 or 40 yards away. From your seated position, you're surrounded by a sea of other seated people. And Jesus is standing somewhere in the center. He's standing so that he can be seen and heard by all these people who have seated themselves around him. You can see him clearly above the heads of all those thousands of people seated in front of you, sitting on the ground. And then suddenly a group of Pharisees and scribes, they appear on the edge of your vision, on the edge of this crowd. They're stumbling across all the people, walking toward Jesus, dragging this woman the whole way through this sea of people on the ground. Eventually they reach him. And you're curious, you're looking, you're watching, you're listening, trying to see what this is about. And you begin to hear them talking and you hear them challenge Jesus with this test of what will he do with the woman. And you're straining to hear Jesus' response. And you've got to that climactic moment that we're at now and you're wanting to know what's he going to say. And then he just disappears. He drops to the ground. You can't see him. He's out of your view. He's so low now that he's blended in with the rest of the crowd. You can't see Jesus at all. One moment you're watching him standing there talking to the Pharisees. The next moment, all you see is the Pharisees and the woman left there alone, standing in a sea of people looking foolish. Where did Jesus go? The visual impact is clear. 
He has removed himself from the conversation. He has declined to play their game or participate in their trap. More importantly, he has refrained from judging the woman. He leaves just the Pharisees standing in the middle of the crowd, isolated in their judgment of this woman. Now, while he's down on the ground, as you heard this text tell us, he occupies himself with something that a bored child might do. He just starts riding in the dirt. He shows a complete lack of interest in the circumstances of what's transpiring above him. Now, we do the same thing today, of course, only we don't typically stoop down to draw on the ground. What do we do? We pull out our iPhones, right? But either way, the message is clear, right? We are disengaging. We are uninterested in what's happening around us, at least for the moment. Naturally, the Pharisees are very uncomfortable with Jesus' maneuver. They recognized he was avoiding their questioning, and so it says here they persist. The word John uses is they persist in asking Jesus to settle this question, even as he's down on the ground, totally disengaged in drawing, right? So at this point, after the persistent questioning, he stands up again, says he straightens up. So again, you're in the crowd, you're back a few feet, you're watching, you're wondering what's going on. Next thing you know, Jesus pops up again for just a moment. And he presents the Pharisees with a simple condition for how they are to proceed if they are to judge this woman. He says, the one among them that has no sin is the first one who may cast the stone of execution against her. And then he promptly goes right back down to his low position near the ground, leaving them standing there alone again all by themselves. It wouldn't surprise me if some in the crowd were sort of snickering at this point, though the circumstances are pretty grave, so maybe not. Now, before I go any further in this story, let's, let's address one of the most hotly debated questions among Bible students, of course, which is, what was he writing on the ground? Now, there are two popular suggestions. One is that he was writing the Ten Commandments. The other is that he was writing a list of sins that were committed by these Pharisees so that the men would have been seeing their own sins written in front of them on the ground, something to that effect. Now, before we pass judgment on these ideas or on any others, let's acknowledge an important fact. The gospel writer, John, did not think it was important to include that detail in his account. Right. He pays no attention to what Jesus wrote, none whatsoever in the text. If Jesus had written something that was critically important to our understanding of the story, John would have told us what was written on the ground. Secondly, any suggestion, therefore, of what Jesus did write has to be the product of pure guesswork. It has to be. We don't have anything else to go by. We can't know what was recorded, not definitively. So while it makes for an entertaining exercise, there frankly can't be a whole lot of value in such speculation. In fact, as I'm going to show you, speculation is likely to move you further away from the insight that's intended in this story than to actually gain you any additional insight because you're moving into consideration of things that are not here as opposed to spending your time considering the things that are here. So let me show you what I mean. Case in point, the two suggestions I mentioned earlier are not only unlikely to be true, in my opinion, but they actually lead you to the wrong view of this moment if you think they were a part of what actually happened. First, there doesn't appear to be near enough time in the midst of this exchange, for Jesus to write such an exhaustive document in either case in the dirt. Try writing even one of these commandments in the dirt with your finger and you'll quickly see how impractical the whole thing would have been. They would have been standing there for a good 10 or 15 minutes, which is not what the sense of the text leaves us with. Given that length of time, it would seem as though Jesus would have gotten very few words at all into the ground before things would have moved on. Secondly, And more importantly, both of those speculations, if you look carefully at why those suggestions have been made, both of them are attempts to suggest a reason for why the Pharisees gave up in their attempt 
to trap Jesus. That's where this eventually leads. People suggest these two answers because then they go from those suggestions to then concluding that it's what the Pharisees saw written on the ground that caused them to back off and walk away. That thinking goes that when the Pharisees saw the Ten Commandments or when they saw their own sins, they were convicted. And as that conviction entered their hearts, they they were convicted to consider what the law said about themselves. Or they were convicted to see their own sins reflected on the ground. When they realized these things, they began to feel some sorrow and regret for having tricked Jesus or for having treated this woman unfairly. And they felt pity for her and they, they left with their tails tucked between their legs. When you think about why you would suggest these two answers, you're naturally going in that direction. You're trying to explain the behavior of the Pharisees and you're using their conviction as your answer. But those storylines run counter to everything we're told about the Pharisees in Scripture. Jesus's words never are shown to bring conviction to these men at any point in any of the Gospels. In fact, the only response you're ever shown is anger and increasing frustration and hatred. They may feel some sense of conviction. I'm not saying that's not happening at times, but they never acknowledge it. They never react in repentance or sorrow. They certainly never back down at any point in any gospel simply because Jesus tells them they have sin. John told them they were vipers and Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. Those things didn't make an impression. Writing on the ground is suddenly going to change their heart. Those answers, friends, are leading us away from what's truly happening here and what truly motivated them to back off. And in that sense, it's taking away insight, not adding insight. It's a good example of the danger of extra biblical speculation brought to the text to explain something that the text does a perfectly adequate job of explaining on its own. I don't believe that there's any significance to what he wrote. He was probably just doodling for all we know. His purpose in being near the ground was simply to disengage from the Pharisees and to avoid their questioning altogether. And in the visual sense to the crowd, he has visually separated himself, suggesting that he is not standing in judgment over this woman. Only they are leaving those men standing foolishly as they are. The Pharisees were her only judges, in other words. Now, if we focus too much on the drawing, what you're going to miss is the truly important moment of the exchange, which happens in verse seven. As Jesus straightens back up and he reinserts himself in the conversation, he says, only those without sin may render judgment against her. Now, he doesn't deny their accusations. He doesn't insist that the woman wasn't guilty. So he's not contradicting or contravening the law. Instead, he accepts the role of judge and he renders his decision for how punishment of execution should be carried out in this case. He establishes that the standard for those who may execute the sentence against this woman is sinlessness. Now, what's he doing here? This is so interesting. The Pharisees were the legal authorities in Israel. And so they had the legal authority to adjudicate this woman's case. They could have taken her into a Jewish court. They could have prosecuted a case of adultery against her, found her guilty, and then they could have executed law against her according to what the Romans permitted. They had the authority to do that already. But at the start of this exchange, notice what they did. They delegated their authority to judge in this case to Jesus. They're like a judge sending a case to another court. They've recused themselves from the role of judge. And they told Jesus he had the right now to decide this woman's fate. Therefore, according to Jewish tradition and law, this woman's judgment now must come from Jesus's decisions. And the Pharisees had no option but to do whatever Jesus said, because they've given him that authority to do so. Now, friends, as you consider that, remember who Jesus is. 
He is not simply another rabbi making a determination in some run-of-the-mill criminal case. He is the judge of all creation for all eternity. When Jesus renders judgment for sin, it is always a judgment that carries eternal circumstances. So any judgment Jesus would render against this woman's sin would carry eternal consequences for this woman. He would be rendering judgment as the judge of all creation because he can do no less. There's no such thing as him stepping out of his role as Messiah. He's been appointed as judge of the world by the Father. And yet, the Father also has said that at this point in Jesus' ministry, as his, in his first coming to earth, he was not to render any judgment, but was to withhold judgment until an appointed day. As Paul declared in Acts 17.30, he, Paul, speaking to the crowd, said, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day, future tense, in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So for now, the Lord, Paul says, is overlooking the times of ignorance, meaning these times in which men are sinning against God. But in verse 31, Paul says this period of overlooking won't go on forever. One day in a day that is fixed in the future, then judgment will come from the one who has been given rights to judge. But in his first coming, Jesus could not render judgment because his mission was to offer salvation to sinners. The father didn't permit him to. His first coming was not about judgment, but was for salvation's sake only. Not until he had earned the right to be judged on the cross would he then have the right to judge the world in the future. Notice Paul said in verse 31, judgment will come through a man whom the father has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Until the raising of Christ, he was not ready to give his son the right to judge. Had Jesus been willing to judge this woman or any of us in his first coming, then who could possibly stand? Before his atoning work on the cross, there was no hope of anyone surviving his judgment because we all would have stood guilty and none of us would have had any sacrifice on our behalf. Therefore, it's the supreme example of God's mercy and grace that he sent his son into the world with a mission that precluded him from judging the world. As the father determined, John actually tells us this himself later in his gospel in John 12:47 and 48. Jesus speaking says, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I listen, I do not judge him. Notice that what he basically said was, if anyone sins against me, I do not judge him. And then he goes on, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him. And then he says, at the last day. So as we stand here in this moment, as this woman stands before Jesus, Jesus has been assigned the authority by the Pharisees to dispose of her case, yet he cannot judge her, for the Father precludes him from rendering any judgment against sin during his first coming. So what does he do? Well, he rules that her punishment could go forward, but it cannot go forward at his hands. It can only go forward by the hands of someone else. And he defines the standard. He sets the standard for who is worthy to take on that role. He says, anyone else here who is sinless, you go ahead and do the judging. Jesus applies the same standard to these men as the father applied to Jesus. Why can Jesus be our judge? Because he earned the right to judge the world having lived sinlessly. Having conquered sin himself, he can then stand as qualified to judge sin. 
And therefore, Jesus says to these men, you presume to take this place as judge, which I cannot take for my father has not given it to me yet. Well, then you must pass the same test that I am prepared to pass in order to earn that right to judge. The one without sin may be qualified to begin the execution of this woman. Now, friends, sinlessness is not ordinarily a requirement to pass judgment under the law of Moses. You know, you didn't have to be sinless. Just like today, judges on the bench don't have to be sinless to pass judgment against people who have committed crimes. Imperfect judges are called upon to bring judgment all the time. But because the Pharisees elected to delegate their authority in this matter before Jesus, they allowed him to define the terms as judge. They committed themselves to whatever course of action he prescribed. Now that they have delegated to him, they cannot ignore what he says. They cannot change it. They cannot go back on it. Else they become lawbreakers themselves. So now the Pharisees are in a trap. If they choose to stone the woman, they will be mocked by the crowd and perhaps even charged with blasphemy because they'd be taking upon themselves the credit of sinlessness, which only God deserves. And they knew that. But then they can't object to Jesus's conditions because they just gave him permission in a public setting to do the judging. And so they would be going against their own word in that case. So beginning with the oldest, which I think is a way of saying the wisest of the group, they decide that they have no option but to retreat. They aren't retreating out of guilt. They're not retreating out of sorrow or repentance. They're not feeling sorry about what they did. This is purely an act of self-preservation. They are probably angry about it, but they are reluctantly leaving out of fear of the crowds and out of a desire to, to preserve their pride under the circumstances. So as the scene comes to an end, only the woman remains with Jesus and he asks her who judges you. And of course, she says no one. And notice he says, neither do I. He can't. Praise be to the Lord, right? That he has come with a mission that precludes him from taking that position. He's not saying he won't. He's saying he can't now. But then he adds, go and sin no more because a day does come one day, doesn't it? That's the same message the Savior is giving to everyone still from the pages of Scripture today. No man in the world judges you for no one is qualified to render that judgment according to God's standard. Neither, though, is God himself judging yet. Not yet. If you are a believer, you place your trust in Christ, then you know for sure that no one stands in judgment over you. Not a man, not a woman, not the enemy, not even the Lord himself, because God has already taken that judgment and put it on his son. But if you have not come to know Christ as Savior, then though you have not yet been judged, it's only because the Lord in his patience is overlooking the ignorance of the day. One day when the Lord returns, that time of judgment will come. And if you never place your trust in Christ, then now is the best time. For it may be your only opportunity. Who knows? The time of mercy and forgiveness will not last forever, but it is here now. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for a reminder that in mercy and grace you came. And in forbearance, you are overlooking the sins of the day. Father, don't let us use that as a license to sin further, but let it be a reminder, Father, of the urgency of our need to spread the word and to be a light in this world. Father, show us how to do that. Take the knowledge of what we learned tonight and let us use it to start a conversation perhaps with someone who is um, ignorant of the truth of the gospel. And bring us back next week, Father, according to your will so that we may continue to study in your, in your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.